0: Welcome to the Bid Mini series, The Real Leaders of Net Zero, where we talk with CEOs about what they and their companies are doing to move the world to net zero. I'm your host, Mark Weedman, here at BlackRock. Today's episode has a twist. You'll hear a conversation between our guest and a special host, my partner, Mark McComb. Mark's gonna chat with Vicky Holland, the CEO of Occidental Petroleum, or Oxy. Oxy is an oil and gas company based in Houston, Texas. Vicki joined over 30 years ago, and she's been CEO since 2016. What makes Oxy worth studying? Because Oxy has placed a net zero objective by 2040 at the heart of their strategy. How does an oil and gas company do that? By aiming to be the global leader in carbon capture and storage. To take the carbon we put in the atmosphere and take it out and put it back in the earth where it belongs. Who thinks your strategy might work? Warren Buffett. Yes, the ultimate long-term investor. He's filed and approved to buy up to 50% of Oxy. This podcast was recorded two weeks before this announcement. I hope you enjoy the episode. And if you haven't already, subscribe to The Bid.
1: Vicki, thrilled to have you join this podcast.
2: Well, thank you. I'm excited to be a part of this podcast. Good to see you again, Mark.
1: Maybe just by way of scene setting, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Occidental. Obviously, such an iconic name, both in the US and global economy, and has obviously been on an incredible journey, and your own journey leading the company for the last six and a half years. Tell us a bit about Oxy.
2: Oxy is basically a 102-year-old company. We started in California as a struggling oil company that hit a few wells. Then we were able to discover one of the largest gas fields in California. The way we discovered that, gas field in California is just moving a few hundred feet over from where a major had drilled and missed. In Libya, what we did is drilled a little bit deeper than a major had drilled and missed. Then that turned us into an international company. We went into the Middle East. And again, our process has been to follow others and either find what they didn't find or get more out of the reservoirs that they were ready to abandon. So we've been around the world doing a lot of things and having a lot of success by ensuring that we put the best people working on the projects that we have. And we just let them use their passion, their energy and expertise to turn our company into one that now is going to be dramatically different than we've been before. We're basically today an oil and gas company with a chemicals business and a midstream and marketing business, but we're transforming ourselves now and ultimately will be a carbon management company. So we've been through a lot of things, a long history that I'm really proud of.
1: That's great. Well, you say in your early history, you were a bit of a follower, but it's clear you've been a leader in recent years, and you were the first major U.S. oil and gas company to have net zero targets. Why was that important to you?
2: It was important because we knew that we had developed a strategy to get there, and we mapped out the pathway. We know we're capable of doing it. And we felt like it was important to take a stand externally and to show others that we have the confidence we can do it. We hoped it would encourage others to do the same, to make that commitment, because we need more corporations to make the commitment and take the lead in their respective industries and or areas of the world. Otherwise, we're never going to get to the goals of the Paris Accord. And so we're trying to do all we can to encourage other companies to join in and try to get us there.
1: I wonder if you could double click a little bit on how the discussion went internally, because obviously, many corporations have thought about this question of net zero, clearly, as an oil and gas company, you're right in the sharp end of the spear, so to speak. And I wonder if you could talk about the strategy of how you actually went about thinking through the execution of this.
2: The discussions around this started early on when we were trying to figure out how to get more CO2 for our enhanced oil recovery operations in the Permian and the conventional reservoirs. So we knew we needed more CO2. And as we talked about that, we realized that the natural CO2 that comes out of the ground was going to be limited. So we started looking at volumes that would come from industrial sites. And we looked at industrial sites for ways to capture carbon there. Then we stumbled across a technology that will take CO2 out of the atmosphere. And the more we talked about that and learned more about what the world was going through, the more we realized that as a, as a leadership team, that we had an opportunity here to not only map out a path to get to net zero, but we needed to do it in a way that would enable us to help others get there too. And we felt like the only way that some others would know to do it would be if we had the discussion around it, set the target, and then started communicating that to others and the pathway to get there. And what we wanted people to know more about is our pathway and the struggles we had to map it out so that it was legitimate, not greenwashing, but a legitimate way to achieve the goal. And sharing that with others in detail, I think, has given other companies at least a pathway to think about it and to think about how can we also make it happen.
1: I love the use of the term legitimacy, because I think that's part of the issue that many companies are dealing with when they think about their own plans towards net zero. And you talked a little bit about carbon and this concept of carbon management. Again, thinking about it through the lens of capturing, storing, using it. Why is that so important in terms of your journey towards a net zero transition?
2: It's important because we felt like we needed to leverage our core competence and expertise Some companies are going out and doing renewables and things like that, and that's important for companies to support that. But from our view, to do something that we do well and that we've done for more than 50 years and know how to do, and still the largest handler of CO2 for enhanced oil recovery in the world, this is what we needed to leverage our strategy on. So we did that. And the use of CO2 for not just sequestration, but use in oil reservoirs and conversion to products is now we believe still a part of our core competence and what we can do better than other companies can do at this point.
1: I think the first time we met, you said we've been handling gases for over 50 years. We know what to do, but I wonder, could you give us a sort of 101 tutorial on how does carbon capture actually work?
2: Yeah, I'll start with direct air capture because it's to us the technology that will revolutionize the world in the way that we think about how to capture it and where to capture it. So our direct air capture facility that we'll be building in the Permian, starting construction at the end of this year, what it does and the way it's going to work is we'll use radial fans to push air through a contact tower. And in that contact tower, we'll put potassium hydroxide through it. And we put diffusers in there that are made of PVC that'll make the potassium hydroxide mix with the air and that potassium hydroxide extracts the CO2 out of the air. Then we can return the rest of the air back to the atmosphere and take the CO2 and then put it into either enhanced oil recovery reservoirs or sequester it in brine reservoirs or convert it to products. And the interesting thing is that a lot of people think direct air capture is just going to be too expensive, Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of synergies that we have with it.
1: You mentioned the Permian Basin, so let's go there now. You are just a massive player in the Permian Basin, and talking about carbon capture in that area, when can we expect to see some tangible results from this project?
2: We'll start the construction of the direct air capture by the end of this year. We'll have it online in 2024. So we'll see then the benefits of having done that. And the important thing about it is that once we can prove up the technology in the Permian Basin where We have so much infrastructure. We can then expand it out because the difference between direct air capture and point source capture, point source capture being where you go to industrial sites and you put the capture on the industrial site. The difference is that we can build direct air capture anywhere. And once you pull the CO2 out of the air, the atmosphere balances around the world. So you can actually work with a refiner. And we can build a direct air capture facility anywhere in the world. And if a refiner wants to offset his emissions, he can buy CO2 credits from us because it doesn't matter where the facility is as long as you're ensuring that it's being tracked properly. And so direct air capture then is also more competitive with some of the carbon capture because you don't have to put in pipelines you build the direct care capture where you want it to be, where you can sequester it or use it. So no pipelines and no worrying about trying to do it in industrial areas or cities or things like that. So it's a much more flexible technology.
1: Vicky, I want to just change tack a little bit. Obviously, the BID podcast has the opportunity to speak to many leaders from different industries, different companies. As the CEO of a large multinational corporation, I'm sure you're bombarded with opportunities from startups and innovative ideas and so forth. Talk us through how you go through the sifting process of really deciding what makes most sense and what to invest in, and maybe with a particular lens, obviously, on the whole CCUS life cycle.
2: For us, we try to make sure that when we're looking at technologies, that we're kind of evaluating it through the lens of ensuring that it can help our strategy. So some companies are just putting out a lot of money into a lot of different entrepreneurs and small companies with the hopes that they can help them succeed. And that's important. That needs to happen. But what we're doing is we're checking and trying to find technologies that fit within the facilities that we need to build to meet our strategy. So, for example, two of the biggest technologies, one is direct air capture that I just described. But that direct air capture facility needs power generation. So we need an emission free power generation for that direct air capture. And so we're not only equity owners in carbon engineering, which provides the technology for direct air capture. We're now equity owners in a process called net power. And net power will be one of the sources of energy that we use for the direct air capture. And net power is a power generating source technology that combines or combust hydrocarbon gases with oxygen instead of air. So there are no volatile organic emissions, and it captures the CO2 so that you can then use it. So no emissions from that type of technology. We have a pilot plant already built, and we've operated it and put it on the grid. We're going to do a little efficiency improvement to the turbine and then start building and expanding that everywhere. I think it's going to be transformational for the power industry. But the reason that it's important for us is it fits with needing that emission-free power source for direct air capture. And so that fits with our carbon capture use and sequestration. And we're also investing in another technology that can convert things like CO2 from various sources into bioethylene through a photosynthesis process. And bioethylene is important because we use a lot of ethylene in our chemicals business. And so that will provide a way to lower the carbon footprint of our chemicals business. So every technology that we get into serves a purpose. It not only serves a purpose, but it will be technologies that we will build as a part of our process. And so we're not only trying to advance technology, but build it and make it more economical for others to use, ultimately.
1: Talking of others, I know some of your peers have sort of pivoted their business model a little bit into renewables. You've taken a different path and chosen not to. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit on that decision?
2: Yeah, we've built solar to support our operations in the Permian. And we'll build solar to support and provide energy for other places for our operations around the world. But we're not going to be a distributor of solar. We're not going to be in the solar business. And the reason for that is, to me, it goes back to what can we do for solar that they're not already doing for themselves? Why would we buy a solar company unless we know we can improve it? So that's why we're not buying solar. We're buying direct air capture, we're buying net power because we know we can improve them and we know they fit within the strategy that we're executing. The other thing that I'm sure everybody's already figured out is that by using the strategy that we're using, we don't see our oil production declining over time. We see our oil production increasing over time versus some of the European companies that are preferring to buy solar and allow their oil and gas production to decline over time.
1: Well, I think what we're witnessing with inflation and obviously energy security in Europe, it's been such a fast moving issue, particularly with the war in Ukraine. Where do you think the industry is in terms of grappling with this question?
2: I think Europe is a prime example of how you should not push the transition too fast. You really need to be sure they have an energy source that's not so interruptible. And the United States right now, due to the shale revolution, is essentially energy independent. Now, people will say, no, we're not because we're importing oil. But yes, we are, because we could actually meet what the United States refineries needed if we need to do that. So we right now are the largest oil producer in the world, with Saudi Arabia and Russia being second and third. And the interesting fact about that, I'm sure not a lot of people think about, is we're producing 11.9 million barrels a day from the United States right now. If the Shell revolution had not happened, we would be producing less than 5 million barrels a day from the United States. So without the Shell revolution, we would be dependent on others for our oil. And I think it's critically important that we never get in that kind of situation. The other thing I'll say about that, this is a big passion of mine, is that I feel like everybody in the United States should be proud of the fact that we have the resources. We have the capability, competency, and have demonstrated our ability to produce some of the lowest cost energy in the world at among the, not the absolute lowest, but among the lowest carbon intensity of any place in the world. And so we have an industry we should be proud of. We have an industry that we need to support. And that doesn't mean that our industry hasn't made mistakes over time. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be a lot different than what we are today. But we're making that transition and we've got to get our methane emissions down. We've got to be more committed to do that. And so that's a message we're trying to get out there. If you don't have a pathway, and if you're not trying to build a pathway, then you shouldn't be in business. And so I think that the pathway that we've laid out has put a little pressure on others to step up and do the same thing or try to figure out a way to get to where they need to
1: be as well. Vicky, that's such a powerful statement. You know, you and I have spoken before, but I wonder if you could just give me your perspective on, is the public getting and understanding the role that oil and gas companies like Oxy play in the transition? Or do you think that the debate still remains a kind of divest versus invest type of binary question?
2: I think the public does not get it because, They're not in our industry. They don't understand the technical aspects of our industry. There are a lot of industries that I don't understand, and I wouldn't understand them if I wasn't fully engaged in them and didn't know how things really worked. So I don't blame the public for not knowing. The pressure is on us. It's our responsibility to try to share our message, to try to educate people about what we're doing, how we're doing it, and why it's so important to continue doing it. So... What I really feel like the public needs to understand, first of all, is that the foundation of the Industrial Revolution was built on oil and gas production, and that cannot change. The world we live in today is supported by oil and gas production. And if people will listen to what we're trying to do, they will be okay with using oil and gas for the next 200 years, because we can do it differently. And the way I want people to think about this is that the demand will be there and should be there if we're developing our oil and gas properly. So this is a very hard concept for people that don't know our industry. But I want to share this message. In fact, the last barrel of oil produced in the world should come from a CO2-enhanced oil recovery project because that's the way to get the most barrels out, and they're going to be carbon neutral the way we do it. Because... The way we do it is it takes more CO2 injected into the reservoir than what the barrels from that CO2 will emit when they're used, which makes it carbon neutral. And the way the CO2 gets sequestered in the reservoir is just think about looking at the countertop in your kitchen. And the countertop in your kitchen doesn't look like it has any porosity, right? It looks like there's no way liquid could get into that countertop. But then one day you see a stain and you realize, oh, my God, my kitchen countertop has porosity. The fluid got into it and stained it. And so think about that as a reservoir. That's the way the reservoir looks. If you look at a core from a reservoir, you would think there's no porosity. But there is porosity. The porosity that's hard to see with a microscope unless you take a layer of it and then use a very powerful microscope. That's where oil gets left behind when oil is produced from the reservoir. So the primary production from an oil reservoir comes out of the bigger pores, but the smaller pores never release that oil unless you put CO2 in the reservoir and the CO2 becomes miscible in those tiny micropores, gets into the oil, makes the oil less viscous and the oil molecule bigger so it pops out of that micropore. That's how you get more production out of a reservoir. So it's not out of the original pores, but out of the micropores. Well, something has to fill that micropore. And it's the CO2 that's left behind that fills that micropore. That's why you can sequest CO2 in an oil reservoir. And that's why it generates more oil out of that reservoir. Do you know how much we're getting out of the shell reservoirs today? We're getting about 10%. We're leaving 90% of the oil in the ground in the shell reservoirs But with CO2, we could at least double that. So we have to get the world to understand that using CO2 for enhanced oil recovery is actually a good thing. It's lower intensity production and it sequesters CO2. It's the best of all worlds. It produces carbon neutral oil and that's ultimately what the world needs to use. That will help us get to the 1.5, and that's how we can then continue to produce oil for decades to come, and it won't be damaging to the environment, and it will actually be helping the environment. If we could get the public to understand that, our transition, the oil and gas industry's transition to a better world and to a net zero production process would be easier to make happen.
1: It was incredibly informative, Vicky. And thank you. I felt like I definitely got a good chemistry lesson there. It's pretty powerful stuff. We started this conversation about Oxy being 102 years old. I'm not going to ask you to predict what the next 102 years look like. And by the way, this is not a forward-looking statement either. But, you know, just give me a little bit of, and our listeners, a sense of what does Oxy look like 30 years from now?
2: I believe that Oxy, 30 years from now, will be a carbon management company. We'll still have our oil and gas business. It'll be producing more, but that oil will by then be the carbon neutral oil. We'll have a chemicals business that's producing the products that we need. In our chemicals business, we produce products for the IV bags and tubes used in hospitals. We produce the construction materials that go into building homes and the PPC that provides clean water distribution, and all that sort of thing. So our chemicals business needs to continue to be successful. It will ultimately become carbon neutral with bioethylene. And so we will still have the two main businesses that we have, but in addition, the third leg of our business will be carbon management for others and helping others do that.
1: So Vicki, I have one last question for you. What do you think is the most important thing that needs to happen for the world to get to net zero?
2: I think that first of all, we need to collaborate and we need to look at the real data and the facts together. And there are a lot of people who are passionate about the world getting to net zero. So what it's gonna take is us starting to work together and to try to figure it out together because we need to trust each other. We need a set of data that's been validated and that's credible. And with that data, we need to form a group that can help drive the right plans based on the right information toward the right path to get there. I'm very much appreciative of all the goals and targets that people have set. But what we have found in our business, if you don't map it out, and if you don't check it, you don't have milestones, you never get there. And we just haven't done that part of it because we don't trust each other enough in the world today. And if we could do that, if we could trust each other, we will get there.
1: Vicki, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. This has really been so enlightening and your passion for the industry and for your company is so clear. So thank you and I look forward to catching up in person soon.
2: Thank you, Mark. I look forward to that as well. This material is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice, a recommendation, or an offer or solicitation to purchase or sell any securities, funds, or strategies to any person in any jurisdiction in which an offer, solicitation, purchase, or sale would be unlawful under the securities laws of such jurisdiction. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change without notice. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risks. BlackRock does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. For more information, visit blackrock.com forward slash the bid.